Hey, good morning, IBC family. The kids are being whisked away right now, and as they're doing so, I want to invite you to turn into your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's, who have, whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. And this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Heavenly Father, right now I just ask that you would give us receptive ears, that you would give us a receptive heart, that you would give us a responsive will. Father, that we wouldn't just uh, be checking off our church for the weekend or getting our kind of booster shot, so to speak, but that, Father, that we would really come with the purpose of receiving what you are telling us. I ask that, Father, you would, uh, as a result of our time here, not only have we worshiped through song and worshiped through our, just our fellowship with each other, but now I pray that we would continue in a spirit and attitude of worship by our willingness to listen as well as a will to follow through. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to let you know what the Bacon family are doing uh, right after service, we are heading up to the Furs. The Furs is like the only place to stay on Mount Baker, and uh, doing a little winter camp up there, and the kids are going to be doing their, you know, first time ever snowboarding lessons. We're really looking forward to it. We were supposed to go last year. That did not work out as planned, um, but this year we're doing it, and, uh, and you're wondering why in the world I'm telling you that. Not only have we been eagerly looking forward to this, but uh, there is a point to that, and that is this. To prepare a family of eight to go to the Furs has required some uh, deliberate planning. Um, In other words, we cannot just kind of throw something together uh, last second this morning, but we have to, you know, it requires a lot of planning. In fact, any time you go on a trip or any time you go on a vacation or whatever you're doing, it always requires a, a degree of planning. Now, I know some of you are kind of maybe one of those last seconders, right? You kind of go on, I, uh, I'm leaving in 10 minutes, so I'll pack in five minutes, and then I go. And it's possible that because of your planning strategy, um, you kind of go, man, I really wish I would have not forgotten that, right? Or maybe you are one of those, those preparers and those, uh, those packers that you plan maybe a month in advance, and then you love to live it out of a bag for a whole month because you still wear the clothes that you've packed. And so, and so what, again, whatever your strategy is or whatever your typical pattern is in preparing for whatever trip you're going on, the fact is everyone must kind of go through either a mental list, which you know you'll forget at that point, 
but if you can go through a written list of things to not forget, right? And on those list of things to prepare for your trip, you have a list of essential things as well as uh, non-essential things, right? So, for example, you know, if Pastor Tom and I are preparing to go on a mission trip, there are some things that are just considered absolutely crucial for this trip. For example, we cannot go to some of the places that we go to unless, first of all, we're flying across the ocean and we don't have a plane ticket. Um, we also have to have a passport. Uh, you, in most cases, have to have a visa. And so we can want to go on a trip all that we want, but if we don't have some of these essential items, it doesn't matter how eager or excited you are to go, the fact is, if you don't have these essential items, you cannot go. Remember dad? Mom, you and mom? Yeah, found out kind of the hard way and stuff about when they changed visa policies. That's kind of a rude awakening. But the fact is, everything we plan for on any kind of trip, if you're going out to Lake Crescent, that particular trip determines the kind of things that you're packing. We are going to Mount Baker. It determined the kinds of things that we are packing and what we would consider essential and non-essential. Why in the world am I going through packing strategies and whatever else, you know, essential and non-essential items to consider for your future trip? Because the last trip you will ever take in this life is a one trip to the presence of Jesus. The final trip you will ever take in your life is a one trip from this life into the next life. And the Bible teaches that everyone is born with an eternal soul. It's part of what makes us unique as human beings, as those who are created in the image of God. And the Bible also teaches us that every soul goes to one of two places. Either they go straight into the presence of Jesus for all eternity, or they go into, they are removed from the presence of Jesus. They will give an account to Jesus, but their soul will be removed for all eternity. Or to put it another way, one day you will die. I'm looking at a bunch of young people right now. That's the last thing on your mind, right? You're like, die? I'm talking about my future right now. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do after I graduate high school right now. Why are we talking about death? Well, the fact is you will die. As I say at every single memorial that I do, there is a 100% mortality rate in the human race. One day we will all die. And here's the other truism with that. We don't know if we're going to live to be 90. All we know is that our heart beats today. We have breath in our nostrils today. And the question is, are you ready to die? Are you certain that your name is written in the book of life? Have you been saved to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ? Well, the Apostle John... He wants, to make, he wants to make absolute certain that you know. He wants to make absolute certain that you are ready for that final trip that you take from this life into the next. 
He wants you to know that you have eternal life. This is what he says in verse 13 of John, 1 John 5. He says, I write these things to you so that you may know. God wants you to know without any doubt, with absolute certainty that you are in fact a child of the King, that if you were to die this moment, that the next conscious reality would be in the presence of Jesus, entering His rest. To put it another way, He wants to make sure that you have packed your eternal luggage with all the essentials. The question is, what are those essential evidences of our eternal life? What, what are those things we might consider uh, non-negotiable in order to know for certain that we have eternal life? Well, there's five things that John gives us in our passage here this morning that I want to state as well as unpack for us in a very succinct fashion. These first essential evidence of eternal life is this. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I want to kind of unpack this here because grammar matters. And as you, if you've kind of worked with me for a long time, I'm, I'm not a grammar freak, but I realize the importance of it. But that word believe isn't a one-time belief. In fact, grammatically, it means to believe constantly or to believe continuously. So, in other words, when, we, when John tells us we must believe that Jesus is the Christ, what he's saying is that we must continually believe. It's an ongoing trust in Jesus Christ. A continuous trust in that Jesus is the Christ. Now, it's important that we understand what we mean by Jesus is the Christ. There's three things that are kind of important to kind of uh, clarify for us if there's any confusion. First of all, we must understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. My name is Aaron David Bacon. I have a first name, a middle name, and a surname. But Jesus Christ is not, Christ is not his last name. It is a title. Christ means Messiah or anointed one from God. That's what it means. Now, so, so, so it's not his last name, and it means Messiah or anointed one from God. And therefore, when, we, when, Jesus, when Paul t- or excuse me, John tells us that we must believe that Jesus or continuously believe and trust that Jesus is the Christ, what he's saying is that you must believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. To be Christ or Messiah or anointed one for God is a title. It's a, it's a, it's a title that um, points us to his mission. You see, Jesus came on a mission. He didn't come randomly some, at some point in time in human history just because he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? Have you missed me? Have you thought about me? That's not why Jesus came. No, it says in Scripture that God sent his son at the appointed time that, were, that was only ultimately known to God. He sent his son at the appointed time for such a time as this, 2,000 years ago, and he came for a very specific purpose, and that purpose wasn't just to be a nice guy. It wasn't just to offer us some good teachings. 
It wasn't just to heal some people temporarily and then go away, and then too bad you didn't live in that time, right? No, he came for a very particular purpose, and that purpose was to be the Savior of the world. He came on divine, a divine rescue mission. And so John tells us that we must continuously believe that, that yes, Jesus, who was an historical person, is not just an, a historical person who had good things to say and healed the sick and, and raised the dead, but he is, that, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one sent by God to be the Savior of the world. In fact, the, the book of Hebrews kind of fleshes this out in a very, uh, you know, actually in very helpful language when we think about this idea of Messiah or Christ. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is both the prophet and a priest and a king. As prophet, we, we learn that Jesus reveals the way to salvation. As priest, Jesus was ordained to be the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins. And as king, Jesus is exalted in heaven and his kingdom and his rule is what we surrender to. So if we were to summarize what John kind of tells us right, up, right at the get-go, right at the, right at the beginning of the gate here, he says this, anyone or everyone who continually rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ, which means finish, rest in the one who points us to the way of salvation, rest in the one who is, the, who is the, the way of salvation, and rest in the one in whom I must bow to one day and in this life, this is the person that we can, that we, that we can kind of point to and go, if, if I'm a child of the king, then I acknowledge this as true, and my life reflects that this is true. I believe and I continuously trust that Jesus is my Savior, that Jesus is my Lord, that he is my God. There's some really practical application to that too, because it's not sufficient for you to grow up in a home that believes that you must believe that. It's not enough that you know about Jesus. It's not enough or sufficient that he was a really great guy who did really great things and even points us to God. You must believe for yourself that Jesus is your Savior and the only way to be reconciled with the Father. There's a second evidence and a second, a second essential component that must kind of be in your eternal luggage, and that is that we love the Father and His family. We love the Father and His family. You know, especially coming off of last week's sermon about the love of God for us, let me ask you a question. Would you say and you don't have to say this out loud, but would you say honestly in your own heart that you love the Father? Would you say that you love the Father? Notice I didn't ask, do you know the Father? I didn't ask, do you believe that the Father is real? I didn't ask, that. Do you, do you know that the Father is in control of all things? No, I asked, do you love 
your heavenly Father. Now, you might ask in response, well, how do I know if I do or don't? How do I know if I really love the Father? I guess my response to your question would be this, well, the same way you know that you truly love anybody, right? How do we know if we know, love anyone or anything else? You, you think about them often. You spend as much time as you can with them. You talk with them often. You talk about them often. There are even positive emotions that are kind of conjured up in your own body when you think about that person or spend time with that person. I recall when uh, my wife Abby and I, uh, before we were married, I proposed to her and left the next day to the pipeline. That's really um, chivalrous of me. Uh, yeah, so I proposed to her, and then I left for four months. It was great. Um, actually, it was great. There was no temptation whatsoever. It was awesome. And so we talked every single day, except for given two days while I was on the pipeline. Now, here's how I knew, or I was confirmed that I loved my wife. I actually wanted to talk with her. And I was willing to talk with her over the phone because I hate talking on the phone. Anybody with me? <laughs> Man, I hate talking on the phone. I will talk on the phone with you, however, if you want to call. So I'm not saying that. If you call, we will definitely have a conversation. That's not what I'm saying here. Um, whew, okay. Dig, dig, dig. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is I was like, Wow. I must really love this person because I'm willing, I can talk over an hour, two hours at a time every single day, and I don't get tired of it. I've never been able to do with it with anybody, even my parents. So I was like, I must really love this person, and I do love this person very much more, even more today. Do you love your Father in heaven? Do you love your Father? The fact is, whether you do or whether you don't, the manner in which we grow in our love for our Heavenly Father is by continually reflecting on the gospel of Jesus that saves us in the first place. You see, it's difficult to fall in love with somebody that you don't really know. But the way in which we begin to know the Father is by spending time with the Father. And when we, are, when we allow our lives to be saturated by His love for you, and when you think about how much He loves you, and how, what great lengths that He has gone and continues to go for you, the response is that you begin to love him back, right? We love because he first loved us. He initiated with us. And as we are basking in that love that he has for us continually, the response is, is that I begin to grow in my love for him. As I mentioned last week, we must never graduate from the gospel we must never graduate from the good news that has saved us. The longer we steep ourselves into how much God the Father loves us and has shown His love for us by what He has done for us, the more our love for the Father grows 
and deepens. But you know, there's another qualifier to this essential component in our eternal luggage. Not only do we love the Father, but we also see that we are to love the Father's children. In other words, love for the Father compels us to love what and who the Father loves. Again, we kind of discussed this a little bit last week, so I won't camp out on it too long on the subject, but, but it's, it's a crucial perspective to understand as well as honestly evaluate in our own hearts. And the question is, do I love God's family? I may say that I love Jesus, right? There's even bumper stickers about that. Jesus loves you even though everyone else thinks you're fill-in-the-blank. I love Jesus. I just can't stand His church. Bunch of hypocrites. Welcome to the club. We have a perfect standard that none of us live up to. Congratulations. We may say we love the Father, but do we love the Father's family? You see, when we came into an eternal relationship with our Father in heaven, we by default also at the same time came into an eternal relationship with the Father's family as well. And therefore, we cannot separate our love for God from our love for brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. This is what John makes much mention of throughout his letter. We can't say we love God and at the same time hate our brothers and sisters. And yet how common it is for Christians, for professing believers, for followers of Jesus Christ to, uh, to, to even say or think, well, I don't hate my brother or sister. I just don't want anything to do with them. Or, or I just avoid them as much as possible. But that's not loving the church of Christ. And if we are unwilling to love everyone in the Father's family, then, the lo- then our love for the Father must now be in question and our confidence of eternal salvation lessens. Listen to what John says in chapter 4, just a few verses prior. You can look in your Bibles if you want, verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, I love the Father, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Recall also from last week, how do we know if we are loving the children of God or how do we know we are, there's hate stirring in us toward a brother or sister in Christ. The language we use really comes down to, are you concerned for them or are you indifferent toward them? You see, love for another person, especially for the family of God, begins with concern for that person. And when you have a concern for that person, it moves you toward that person. Hate, on the other hand, begins with indifference. 
And you, it moves you ultimately away from that person ever so subtly, especially that person who has potentially caused you pain. So the question is somewhat begged again. Do you love God's family? And how would you know? Well, is there someone in your life that you were more inclined to move away from than to move towards? Is there someone in your life that you struggle to actively pursue in love? How do we know that we love the Father and His family rightly? John tells us, thirdly, that we obey His commands. Verse 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. It's kind of similar to what John says a couple chapters earlier in in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God has been perfected. Practically then, what obeying God's commands according to John the Apostle, John the Apostle means that we do what he says. Even Jesus says this over and again throughout the Gospels. For example, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Or listen to what Jesus says in John 14, the sermon, uh, the, the upper room discourse. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we see very quickly that obeying God's commands is proof that we love him and his family rightly, and in turn, is evidence that we are truly saved to eternal life. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, when I talk about we must obey God's commands, your response might go something like this. Here we go again. More rules, more commands. Isn't just Christianity a bunch of rules, a bunch of demands? that really stripped the joy out of my life. Or you might have the perspective of God's commands more, on the, more along on the lines of, um, like, here are more rules that I struggle to follow. Here are more commands that only compound the shame and guilt that I already feel in my life. I find it interesting that when we hear words like, especially in our day and age today, We hear words like rules and commands or obedience and law. Our minds probably immediately go to words, these words, or view these words as kind of somewhat negative, right? As if they can never be good or helpful, let alone result in joy. But listen to what John says in verse 3, the last part of verse 3. He says, and his commands are not burdensome. On one hand, we go, oh, God says, I have this standard and I must, and here's the commands, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But he also says, but by the way, my commands aren't burdensome. 
They're not intended to be overwhelming for you. They're not intended to be an added weight to your life. They're not intended to be a killjoy for your life. Quite the opposite, in fact. And even though you might actually hear words like commands or rules or law, you might, like, well, they, you might even say, well, they sure do feel burdensome at times. I mean, look at my track record, right? Look how much I fail. Of course they're a burden. Brothers and sisters, it's important that we understand that when God gives us commands, they're not to work against us. They are to work for us. That is why they're not burdensome. You see, the only reason why God's commands seem burdensome is because there is a battle that wages war in all of us. It's a battle between the Spirit of God that now indwells us and our fallen nature. It's a battle between our new nature and our old nature. And the old nature can never love God, let alone it cannot obey God's commands. It is always self-seeking. That, is what we, the, that was the fallen nature we were all born with. And yet when Jesus saved us by His shed blood on the cross, and when God delivered us and we were reconciled to God the Father, and the Spirit of God came and took residence or tabernacled in us, we now have a new nature. We have a new heart, but that doesn't mean the old nature is eternally dead yet. We live in this already but not yet reality where we now have a new nature, we have a new master, we have a new Lord, we have new affections, we have new wills. But at the same time, we also have an old nature that kind of draws us back into the grave, so to speak. And that's just reality on this side of eternity. And it's important that we understand that God gives us these commands to help us, to help us fight the good fight of faith. He doesn't give us commands because He's trying to make our lives more difficult or, or less joyful. No, He gives us commands so that we might gain our life, so that we would enter His joy that is everlasting. Maybe we could state it this way. God doesn't give us commands because He doesn't love us. He actually gives us His commands because He loves us. I mean, think about the perfect, heavenly, loving Father. He gives us commands to guide us so that we would not fall into the many snares of the devil. I mean, you parents understand, right? If you've raised any kids, you're not loving your children by saying, you know what, it's a free-for-all. Do whatever seems best to you. That's not how you love your children because you are aware, much like they are not aware, but you are aware because you've lived life for a while. There are so many things that could take them out in one fell swoop. There are dangers that they are oblivious to. My kids think the parking lot is just a large playground with obstacles. And so we have a rule. Run the hallways wild and crazy. You just can't leave out those second set of doors. They didn't learn right away, but I think they've learned now. And we've had close calls even in our own family, grabbing the arm, pulling them back because they're just kind of 
oblivious to it are all around them. But as parents, you learn and you've lived life and you realize we navigate life because of our experience and we know what's helpful for us. And the fact is, God, as the perfect father, as the perfect parent, he doesn't give us rules because he's against us. He gives us rules because he's for us. He wants us to be saved. He wants to protect us. He wants us to experience his joy. And he says, this is the pathway to life. This is the pathway to eternal joy. This is what brings life. And we are bombarded every single day with with, uh, ideas and thoughts and suggestions, either from the enemy himself or from our own fallen nature or from the fallen world in which we live, saying, actually, this would really, really make your life so much better. And they're all leading us astray or potentially leading us astray. There are so many things in life that we might put under the umbrella of wolves in sheep's clothing. They seem innocent, but they will actually take us out and they will destroy us. And so God says, I love you so much. I care for you so much that I actually want to help you. I want to deliver you. I want to save you. Follow me. Follow me. Obey my commands. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. There's a fourth essential item that needs to go in our eternal luggage, and that is that we have overcome the world. We have overcome the world. Remember what John stated back in chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. You might have memorized these verses even if you took Awana, right? I think I learned these verses first in Awana, right, Suzette? Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Maybe your translation says lust and not desires. Those are all synonymous terms referring to the same thing. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes are cravings for things you don't have. Remember, we just, I just mentioned it. There are so many things bombarding us with things that are going, hey, I'll give you some joy. I'll give you happiness. I'll ease that pain. I'll ease that burden. You just got to have more of this. These cravings, these lusts, these desires are for things we don't have. And the pride of life is being consumed by the things that you already do have. You know that old mantra? I'm not sure where it came from. He who dies with the most toys wins. Stupidest mantra ever. (laughs) He who dies with the most toys loses because you take nothing with you. You take nothing with you into eternity. So we have to live with eternity in mind, not with being so short-sighted, being so nearsighted in this life. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have fun things in life. God isn't against having things in life. That's not what he's saying at all. 
It just means that we live with eternity in mind, knowing one day I leave it all behind me. My kingdom that I live for is not this kingdom. It is the kingdom that Jesus has established. And one day we will be fully present in with a glorified body. That's the kingdom we are called to live for. That's the kingdom that lasts for eternity. But there are all kinds of things kind of vying for our attention, promising, boasting big promises, but have no ability to follow through. And so John is saying that the person who is really saved is no longer consumed by these worldly desires, these worldly lusts, because as Paul says in Romans 12 too, they have been transformed by the renewing of their mind. Or as one commentator put it, the spell has been broken over them, right? You remember that? I just came to my mind. Remember Lord of the Rings? I'm a Lord of the Rings kind of nerd. Um, yeah, thank you, one person. I like watching, I love the cinematography mostly, but there's a, in the, in the middle movie there, there's a scene where there's the, the, I can't even remember names right now, but the king who's obviously, uh, has been possessed by the evil wizard. And that's what he's talking about. He's just like, in a sense, in a spiritual level, we are, we grow up kind of possessed, clouded, blinded to reality, and then the spell is broken when the Holy Spirit comes in and takes, uh, takes residence in your life. We, are, we all of a sudden have eyes to see things as they really are, and it's like we have air to breathe. It's like, oh, oh, I can see once again. I can see reality in front of me. The spell has been broken by those who are overcomers. Who are the overcomers? But those who have surrendered their life to Jesus and the Holy Spirit has taken residence. And not just taken residence, but is filling and consuming their lives. Do not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled by the Spirit. The fact is, An overcomer sees reality through a new set of spiritual lenses that enables them them to see Jesus as far greater and far better than anything the world has to offer. The fact is we were once hostage. We were once in bondage. We were once slaves. And now as the people of God, we see Jesus as more desirable. I think John Piper said it well. He says, faith sees Jesus as better. That is why faith conquers the world. Fifthly, however, we must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, remember at the beginning of our passage here, John said that we must believe that Jesus is the Christ or that Jesus is the Messiah, meaning that Jesus is the only one who is the Savior of the world, who's who's the deliverer for my sins. We must believe that, that Jesus is the only option to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. But here in verse 5, John says something slightly different. He says we must also believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which is another title that points to the deity of God. Of Jesus. In other words, Jesus, the man who came as the Savior of the world, is also Jesus, the God man. He is both human as well as divine. He had a human nature that wasn't corrupted by sin, but he had a divine nature as the Son of God. Kind of harkens back to 
the contrast of what some other even, quote, Christian religions believe or exert about Jesus. Jesus has always been present from eternity past and will always be present to eternity future. He's always been the second person of the triunity of God. That has always been true about Jesus. It's interesting to note that the disciple Peter, you might recall from Matthew chapter 16, right? Jesus has these strong teachings, very blunt teachings. And in Matthew 16, we see that most of the people that they just take off, they want nothing to do with what Jesus just had to say. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to go too? Are you going to leave me also like everyone else? And what does Peter say as a sort of verbal representative of the disciples? What do you say? Where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. But we also see that Peter acknowledges because he has something given to him by, his, by the Father in heaven. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So in one succinct statement, Peter actually acknowledges that Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, but that He is Lord. He is both Savior and He is also Lord, meaning He is King Jesus. He is the one that we are surrendering to. But by the way, that word surrender that sometimes has a negative connotation in our minds is actually a very good thing for you because surrender is the means by which we gain our life. Surrender is a death to our old life, and it is an invitation to a new life uh, with new affections, with new hope, with new perspective, with new lenses to look through. We look through everything very differently by surrendering to, to Jesus. He gives us our life. The question is, is this your confession? Is Jesus your Savior? Is Jesus your Lord? As I said earlier in our sermon, no one can believe for you. You must believe for you. John says in his gospel, chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So brothers and sisters, and all of us who are gathered here together this Sunday morning, February 5th, 2023, is Jesus your Savior? Is he your Lord? Are your bags packed appropriately? Are you ready for that final trip in life in which you take your last breath and the next breath is waking up in the presence of Jesus? Do you know for certain? The fact is, John says, I write these things so that you would know. And he speaks on behalf of the inspiration of God 
So it's really God saying to you, I want you to know. And if there isn't any doubt whatsoever in your heart, this is your invitation to grapple accordingly and to look through these five essential components of eternal confidence. Say, yes, I now know that I have eternal life. These are definitely true of me. You know, it's when I think about not to push the illustration more than it has to be, but I'm thankful that there's nothing we have to do to purchase this salvation. When we go on trips, there's always a list of things we have to go to, and then we're usually running to the stores to grab all the final items. I've got to make sure I have enough of this. I've got to make sure i got some medication. I've got to make sure i got all these things. When it comes to our salvation, Jesus has purchased everything. And all you have to do is receive. Everything has been done for you. You just got to pack it. Are you ready? Well, Jesus wants you to be ready. Heavenly Father, we are, as we draw a close to this part of our worship service, I just pray that each one of us in here, Father, would not leave until they know without any doubt that they are, in fact, children of God. I pray that as they, look, as they work through the necessary requirements, not because we had to manufacture them, not because we had to do anything, but we are just receiving what you've already done, but as we evaluate our own hearts and confirm to ourselves that we are, in fact, children of God, I pray that we would know that, Jesus, you are our only Savior. You are our only hope for eternal life. And because you have loved us, Father, through your Son, we know that we love your children, we love your church, and we love you. And we are overcomers. Not because of the strength that resides intrinsically to us, because of your spirit that indwells and consumes us. Heavenly Father, I pray that each and every one of us in here, I pray that there would be a peace and a resolve in our minds and hearts that if you were to come back today or that we were to go to you today, that we would stand before you And we would know with expectation that the words we would hear from you are well done, good, and faithful servant. Enter my rest. May that promise be true of each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.